If you turn with me to the passage on which today's teaching is based, it's printed on page 8 in your bulletin, or you can open your, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Now I'll be reading from various parts uh, scattered between chapters 18 and 20. And I'm going to actually insert one more set of verses. I struggled with putting this in the bulletin, but I'm just going to read it as we go. So it's going to be a little bit off script in terms of what you're going to be reading along with me and what's printed in the bulletin. And then we're going to go return back. So I'm going to read from chapters 18, verse 1 to 4, 19, verse 4 to 5, chapter 20, verses 1 to about 4. Then we're going to read verse 17, 30 to 31, 41 to 42. It's an amazing passage, and it's an amazing narrative. <clears throat> Chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Chapter 19, verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then? Would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Verse 17. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Verse 41. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. And this is God's word. We're wrapping up a very short series today. Uh, the short series we've been calling Character Above Competence. It's kind of like a mantra we have here at Metro if you're new. 
And uh, we thought it would be good, because one out of every five, four or five people here at Metro are new, to share a little bit about the ethos of Metro without going through a whole new series uh, on the values of Metro. And so today we're going to focus, we've been talking about the things that basically will make or break your life that you need in order to grow in faith and character and make it through life today, in our world today. And today we're going to focus on one of the most important elements that make your life or break your life, and that's your friendships, your relationship, your community. Because more than we want to believe, we are a product of the closest friends in our lives as, as the greatest shaping influences in our lives. The way we respond to them, the way we view them, the way we're influenced by them, they're the greatest shaping influences in our lives. And so we're going to go into three things today. Uh, one, the criticality of our friendships. Two, the ingredients, what makes a great friendship. And lastly, the application of friendship. In other words, what we're going to look at is why it's important, what makes a good friendship, and how do you become a good friend to others. And we're going to see this. It's everywhere. I mean, you read it. That reading it alone, this is one of those passages, when you read it, it just gets you. You see this through this famous friendship between David and Jonathan. First, we're going to look at the criticality, why it's important. First, we see that Saul, after David had slain Goliath, Saul brought David to his court after this great victory. And from chapters 18 to 20, you see Saul murderously, enviously going at David. He's envious because of David's popularity. He's envious because of David's success. And during this time, he tries to kill David many times. Anywhere between 6 and 12 times, he tries to kill David. It's the most dangerous time in David's life because he's cut off from his family and he's living in the palace, in the court with Saul, always having to look over his back. What sustained David during this time? What kept David during this time? It was friendships. It was the friendship with Jonathan that made it bearable. It was his friendship with Jonathan that actually was, made it survivable because he wouldn't have made it through life. He wouldn't have made it through the next step without Jonathan. If you notice at the top of chapter 18, you see what we call the making, the formation of this covenant friendship between David and Jonathan. And if you see at the end uh, of chapter 20, the end of this narrative, the bottom of uh, what's written in your bulletin, you see a reaffirmation, a renewal of this covenant relationship between David and Jonathan. And you see, so what you see, you see the beginning of a covenant, the ending of this passage, a covenant. Whenever you see that in scripture, what's in between the sandwich usually shows you how that friendship, how that covenant is playing out what it means to live in a covenant friendship. It's all in between that sandwich, those two ends. The text is teaching you how to apply deep gospel friendship. Because look what's happening here. There's evil everywhere in David's life. There's violence everywhere. There's danger everywhere. But bracketing that danger is what? David's covenant friendship with Jonathan. And what does that mean? It means in our lives, you're going to have trouble in your life. You're going to have suffering in your life. It's silent in here, isn't it? Because you know. You're going to have trouble. You're going you're to have tragedies in your life. There are going to be storms in your life. And your life, you will drown without your friends. 
you will drown without friendship. You're never going to make it through life without friends, real friends. In Genesis chapter 2, God says, let us make man in our image. Who's us? Because what that shows us is by nature, the biblical God is a trinity. The biblical God is Trinitarian. And that means that from the beginning, from the beginning, God is a covenant friendship. Friendship is at the very essence of the nature of God. That means that before even the universe was created, there was friendship. That's why we need friendship. That's why that loneliness you feel sometimes, it's because you were designed to be in relationship with others because we were made in the image of God. And so when you're lonely, you are actually demonstrating a quality, a deficient quality of God, godliness. To have deep, rich friendships is godliness in its own right. And so you're never going to be able to live life without close friends. In this city, in this great city, in this generation, this great generation, we all come to the big city for what? Everyone migrates to the big city. 50% of the world, they say, maybe even more, 50% of the world lives and migrates to the great big cities in the world. There aren't that many of them. 50% of the world's population lives in the city. Why do they come to the city? It's because in the city, that's where you find a career. In the city, that's where you get jobs. In the city, that's where uh, you find love. You experience these things that will build your life. You can build wealth. You can build your life. And so your job and your career and your work, they're the non-negotiables in this generation. But relationships tend to be tenuous. Relationships tend to be negotiable because you can always pick up. You may have to pick up. If you're a resident, you're going to pick up and you're going to go to another city. And so you don't want to get too attached you don't have the time to get too attached. You don't have time to invest because you can always move in this transient society that we live today. And that means many people form relationships today to the degree that they need to be fulfilled. Friendships are negotiable in our world today. Relationships tend to be more casual, a means to an end. But think about this. Without good, rich, meaningful relationships in your life, your career is not going to sustain you. Your wealth is not what's going to bring you happiness. They're not enough. If you invest in friendships, think about this, if you invest in friendships the way you invest in your career, as carefully as you invest in your career, we are so casual and flippant about our relationships with our friends. We oftentimes brush them aside. If you brushed your work aside like that, you wouldn't have a job. If you brushed your work aside, you wouldn't have a career. If we were as careful at investing in our friendships the way we do our career and our wealth, that's how you know if somebody's truly interested in you as a friend, by the way. If you're as careful in the way you invest in friendships, you'd be less lonely. You'd be less anxious. You'd be less angry. You'd be less despairing in your life. The reality is we don't know, no matter how intelligent you are, because intelligence, your competence, is not what gets you this. It doesn't matter how competent you are, how many skills you've built up, even in the workplace, in making friends at work. The reality is our skills are not sufficient to lead us. We don't know how to be good friends. We don't know how to make good friendships. And we think that getting by at work with the same skills will get us the same types of good friends, and it's not true. It's not going to make you everlasting friendships. You're wrong. Friendships are critical. 
the criticality of friendships. Very important. Now, number two, and we're going to spend the bulk of the time here because it's all over this passage. What are the ingredients? What makes a good friendship? And we're going to see this in all the passages that we read. Uh, Jonathan's friendship with David. So I'm just going to run through these. If you're taking notes, there's like four plus five of them. Okay, there's like nine of them. All right, so we're just going to run through this. All right, okay, first, we're going to say that there's values. You share values. Chapter 18, verse 1. Jonathan, here's what's going on. David is appealing to Jonathan's father, the king. And as Jonathan is listening to David talking to the king, Jonathan says, my heart is one with him. Our values are aligned. Jonathan became one in spirit with David. Good friends develop a oneness, a like-mindedness. Verse 1, Jonathan loved David as a result. He loved David as he loved himself. In other words, the friendship begins with this like-mindedness, like minds, shared values in a way where you become one. That person completes you in a sense. It's not that, it's not that you were exactly alike before you met, but when you came together, when you share in each other's passions, when you share in each other's values, when you're hearing of each other's passions and values, you're realizing more about your passions. You're realizing more about what you value. And so that influence and that shaping influence of one, it starts to work in your heart. It starts to wake up your soul and you say, me too. That's me. And when you share the same values, you're moved by the same things. It's a spiritual thing. It's a cosmic bond that's forming there. In chapter 20, at the end of this passage, that last verse, Jonathan says, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship in the name of the Lord. There's this common trust because of common values, a common passion, sharing in the same suffering, sharing in the same burden, sharing in the same love, shared values. Number two, chapter 18, verse three, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. The relationship begins and ends with a promise. You have these shared values and you know that person is, is a part of my soul. And so you make a promise. Relationships, friendships are built on promises. Today's generation, you'll hear all the time, well, I don't really like to make promises, especially with respect to relationships, because then I don't want to disappoint people, so I don't want to make promises. And you know, that's one of the most immature views on friendship. You know why? Because you're truly then using the other person to fulfill yourself. If you look at God's love for his own son, and if you look at the son's love for his father, our entire relationship with God is built on what? What you've done for him? No. It's built on his promise. It's built on the foundation of a promise that stretches from the beginning of time, you see? Otherwise, you're just using each other to fulfill your own needs. There's nothing binding. In a business relationship, you're obligated. You are contractually obligated to be in a relationship. But a covenant relationship is different than just a mere contract. It's, it's not less than that, really, but it's a lot more than that. In a covenant relationship, you are obligating yourself. You are choosing to obligate yourself by choice because of your love for that person. A contractual relationship asks what? What do I get out of this relationship? A covenant relationship asks what? What can I give in this relationship? Think about this, for those of you who are married, what makes a marriage so unique is not necessarily the romance. 
It's not necessarily just the sex. It's not the feelings. What makes a marriage so unique is the promise. It's the covenant. You don't sit there and wait midway through a marriage before you start to share vows. I've tested you out. It works. Let's share some vows together. That's not what you do. You start in the beginning of that marriage, and what do you say? You haven't lived a day together. And you say, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. This is the heart. This is at the heart of the modern problem of dating, the modern problem of job seeking, modern problem even in finding a church today. And it's why relationships are so negotiable today, because we don't want to obligate ourselves. We don't like that word. We don't like the responsibility of relationship, but we love the thrill of relationship. We don't want to, uh, we want to protect ourselves. Uh, we want to protect the things that we desire. We want to fulfill ourselves. And so uh, uh, we want to do all the things. We want to preserve ourselves, protect ourselves, when really the relationship, a covenant relationship, protects the other person. It protects the relationship. And you're for that relationship. It fulfills the other person in that relationship, whether or not your needs are met. Think about this. You know, um, uh, Jonathan, in this covenant relationship, Jonathan looks at David, and knowing what's going on between David and his father Saul, he's caught between family and culture in those ancient times where family and culture were everything, and his relationship with his friend David. And he knows because of him self-obligating, because of his choice made out of love, I'm going to lose my throne. I'm going to lose my inheritance. I'm going to lose the kingship. I'm going to lose my father. I'm probably going to lose my life in this. He never once said, David, what do I get out of this? My individual needs are not being met. You don't fulfill me, and so you don't complete me. Is that what he said? Friends, if he did that, if he said that, we don't have the rest of the Bible. You understand? Jonathan was a true friend. In chapter 20, verse 4, after seeing the gravity of the situation between David and Saul, how does he respond? Don't you talk to my, about my dad like that. This is the king. You are committing treason. No, he says, whatever you want me to do for you, I'll do. He knows what that's going to cost. Whatever you want me to do for you, I'll do. So you have shared values. Uh, you have uh, uh, a shared promise. Number three, because you have the same values, because of friendship being built on a promise, the best of friends see each other's potential and desire to advance their potential. In chapter 18, verse 4, because remember, a worldly relationship doesn't work that way. A worldly relationship eyes out and picks out friends to advance their own potential. A worldly relationship looks at a friend and says, I need to get to know that person because that person's that way, my approval. I can get more approval that way. A worldly relationship says, I'm going to seek after that person because if I can be, be with that person, then that person can help me to get even more people. A worldly relationship says, I'm lonely. I'm despairing. Who can help to fill that gap and fill the hole that's here, that cosmic emptiness that's here? 
and that will consume the other person and still consume you. You see that? It's corrosive, very corrosive. Godly friendships, the best of friends see each other's potential. Chapter 18, verse 4, Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing, gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, his belt. You know what that means? The robe represented the kingdom, royalty. To surrender your robe meant giving up your rights. That meant Jonathan, the heir to the throne, was giving up his throne, handing it over to David. Jonathan is the prince. Jonathan would be king. To give up your sword meant this person is defenseless. I have power. I have security. That's what it meant. To give up the tunic meant that now I'm naked. Now I'm defenseless. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? It's because Jonathan saw the Lord was with David. And even though he was a king, David, he realized, was the true king. And because Jonathan trusted God, he trusted David. What he's saying is, I see who you can become. I see your potential. And so this robe is yours. This tunic, I'm renting this tunic. It belongs to you. This sword, I'm just borrowing the sword. I'm giving it to you. This bow and this belt, it may sustain me for now, but it's meant to sustain you for all time. It's meant to be yours. You were meant to be king. I see your potential, and I will do what it takes. I will do whatever it takes to see you advance. A true friend wants to find your strength and your gifts. A true friend will celebrate you and affirm you. A true friend will advance you, not merely use them to advance themselves. A true friend, boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, friend, best friend, it doesn't matter. A true friend will find your strengths and your gifts and seek to advance others above themselves. Jonathan knew, if I do this, I will lose the rights to the throne if David advances, if David thrives. I will lose myself if David thrives. And yet he says, I want you to take everything. Take it all. Have it. That's yours. What he's saying is, I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to surrender everything. I'm going to forfeit everything so that you can gain everything. That is a covenantal relationship. In what ways are you seeking to advance other people at your cost? It's one thing to say, hey, you know, you could be sacrificing your time. That's a cost. You could be doing that. You could be sacrificing your finances. You could be doing that. Your resources, your home. It's not just any one of those things. It's all those things. Because friendship is invasive. Friendship is not topical. Friendship crashes through the door. That's what it does. In what ways are you using your gifts and your resources to seek after others' advancement, to celebrate others, to surrender and sacrifice for others, to advance their gifts and their strengths. Seeking each other's potential and advancement. Number four, uh, if you look at the oneness between Jonathan and David, if you look at their love and their faithfulness to each other, it breeds a certain type of trust. And when you breed that type of trust between two or several people, uh, you can start to let your hair down. Now, uh, some of you are very, e you easily let your hair down, you know, uh, it's, it's a metaphor, okay, <laughs> right? You easily let your hair down for lots of people, very quickly. But others of you, uh, you're very careful, and you only let your hair down for a few, you see? 
If you don't know what I'm talking about, what I mean by that is you're comfortable and you let them into your life to see all the different dimensions of your life, especially the boring qualities of your life. In chapter 18, verses 1 to 3, you know that David and Jonathan, they lived in the same house. And what that means is that, you know, what's recorded here, all these things that are recorded is really probably like less than 10% of the sum total of their relationship, right? You're probably seeing these, this, these narratives put together is really probably a small, a small portion of the whole of their friendship because they saw each other every day. You know, they got together and most of their time, the 90% is what you don't see here in this text. Them getting together, eating, shooting hoops, playing Xbox, joking around, you know, lounging around on the couch, going shopping together, right? I don't know, two men, ancient times, right? They go to the market together, right? Um, most of the time, 90% of their relationship, you don't see recorded here because it's the mundane stuff. It's the stuff that nobody cares to talk about. Your errands, shopping together, watching TV. Why is that important in building a friendship? And it's because the only reason why you would share any of those mundane qualities about yourself is because you've let them in. It's a marker. There is a crossing of the line. It probably happened over a period of time but you've become vulnerable to them. They're in. Thornton Wilder, a famous writer, he wrote this famous play called Our Town. I've probably talked about it at some point before. It's a very short play. You can read it in one sitting, but the main point of that play, you have this main character, the protagonist is is Emily, and Emily dies. Now, before Emily passes away, Emily is, uh, is bored. She hates this town. It's a boring town. She hates her family. It's a boring family, but then she passes away, and her ghost comes in. And her ghost is now waking up to Emily waking up on Sunday morning. And she smells the food that her mom made. And she sits there with her family. There's an empty chair. And she says, if I could only sit with my family and experience a Sunday morning again. It's all those little things that I took for granted in in a sense. I'm kind of paraphrasing the, the play. But it's all those little things that I've taken for granted, that I've neglected and those are the things that matter most now. That's what she says. So she kind of says her, her uh, goodbye at the end of the play. Goodbye, world. Goodbye, mama and papa. Goodbye, the clock's ticking and mama's sunflowers and food and coffee and new iron dresses and hot baths and sleeping and waking up. Oh, earth, you're too wonderful for anybody to realize you. It's those mundane things, the 90% of a friendship that make a friendship. Number five, because you see all those dimensions, you understand that person. You have a whole picture of that person. And so there's an empathy that you have that's very unique. And so because you have that empathy, you're very protective of that person. You're very loyal to that person. In chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, Jonathan confronts Saul, who is the king. It's different than a democracy. There is no democracy. The king's word is law, even if he's wrong. He goes to his king. He goes to his father in these ancient times where the father meant everything in a family. And he says, what? You're wrong. He says, David is innocent, and you are doing wrong to an innocent man. Because he's friends with David, he loses the trust of his father. 
he stops being a confidant of his father because of his loyalty to his friend. And so in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, what happens? The wrath that Saul had for David starts to transfer to Jonathan. He starts to get the wrath. He starts to get the anger. David used to get the anger. Now Jonathan's getting the anger. Number six, good friendships are marked by honesty, integrity. Because why would you lie to this deep, rich, intimate friend of yours, right? And yet, our hearts are so prone to lie because we so desire, so much desire to be approved by our friends. Good friends are marked by integrity and honesty. In chapter 18, verse 1, they say, it says that they were one in spirit, and Jonathan loved David as himself. To give him a sword, he's saying, I'm defenseless. He's opening himself up. He's making himself vulnerable to let his friend in to see. To see what? To see what? In chapter 20, Verses 1 to 3, which is not printed in your bulletins, but I felt like I had to read. David says, your father, I'm going to paraphrase, he says, your father's trying to kill me. Now, we're very protective of our families. It's a very natural thing. And what David is accusing and what he's indicting of Saul is very, very harsh. Because what he's saying is your father is not only against God, but he's a criminal who is against God. He's rebelling against God. Your father is trying to kill me. And Jonathan says, what? In the beginning, he says, no way. No way. Why would he do that? He would tell me if he had an issue with you. But we know now that he's lost the trust of his father. Right? His father knows that they are friends. And David responds and he says, I am one step away from death all the time, Jonathan. Don't you know that? I'm suffering. Every day, I'm one step away from death. If I let my guard down once, for one moment, for all this time, I will die. I'm helpless and I'm in trouble. What is he doing? He's talking about Saul. He's talking about Jonathan's father. And he's being honest. I'm sure he had to be very careful about how he was phrasing it. But he's being honest about the difficult things, about the hard things in life. Does it affect their relationship? No. No because of the promise, because of the trust, because of the, all the dimensions that Jonathan was able to see, because of their shared values. There's a loyalty that's built up through all the dimensions of friendship. Jonathan knows. He knew. He knows. And so there's some debate. They fight a little bit. But there's an honesty, and it invites their friendship, invites an honesty does your friendship invite the honesty of your friends about you? Does your friendships invite and affirm? I'll say it another way. Do your friendships tempt your friends to be dishonest about you or to be honest about you? Do you tempt them to disregard their integrity or do your friendships build up their integrity? Because number seven, a good friendship is not just marked by honesty. It's also marked by a sharpening of one another. It's not marked by the absence of arguments, but a clarity that develops and is shaped because of your arguments, through the arguments. That means that good friends are going to fight. 
That means good friends are going to argue. I don't know how many people come to me and say, I need help in my marriage. Why do you need help in your marriage? Well, because we fight so much. And I say, well, who's your best friend? I say, my wife. I say, well, then you have no problem, right? You should be fighting. How else are you going to find clarity about yourself? They're going to tell you things that you don't like to hear about yourself. They're just being honest because they love you, because they care for you. Now, you know, that there's a lot of different nuances in every, in every friendship, and I don't want to diminish the, the degree or degrade or, you know, put down the fact that people suffer in their marriages because of their arguing, but the very nature of a friendship, what makes a marriage a marriage is not the romance, it's the friendship. And friends, the better friends you are, the more you're going to fight sometimes, you see? They're going to argue about, over things. They're going to discuss and debate things. They're going to anguish over decisions. You know, in the beginning, it might be about a simple, you know, you know no, 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 it's, it's, the score is 8 to 7. No, 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 it's, it's it, because and you still have to sit there and go back and say, remember that one time when I did that layup and then, you know, I took that, you took that three. It starts with something like that, but then later on it becomes what? You start to debate real things, bigger things, you know. Um, a good friendship is marked by getting through the arguments in a way that there's clarity and shapes you. Good friends let you into their fears as a result, into the dark places of their hearts, into the hard decisions that have to come, the things that they don't want to surrender. Because they're personal, because they're in, that's how you know they're good friends. You have already given them implicitly a right to do that. You have given them a warrant to arrest you. And you did that because they trust you and because you trust that they want you to thrive. And so the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 says, Exhort one another daily, lest any be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me unpack that. Exhort one another daily. That means admonish, challenge, spur one another daily, lest any be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know what that means? The things that go most wrong with you are the things that you least likely see in yourself. The things that you don't want to believe about yourself. The things you actually genuinely may not even know about yourself. You definitely don't see it or you hide from it or you run from it. You don't want to address it. I don't know how many people I've met even in the past year. When people are confronted with who they are, the way they try to squirm and wiggle their way out, and I hear stories about that, you're not going to grow that way. And you need good friends. You need to listen to your friends. See? I don't know how many conversations I've had in the past year where you ask them, you know, so what do you think about what your friends are saying? And they say, and they try to euphemize the actual issue. They're still trying to run. And only true friends, a pastor can't help you in that way. You see, only true friends surrounding you and saying, you cannot escape. You have to listen to this. You're exhorting one another daily so that the other person is not being hardened by the deceitfulness of their sin. We talked about self-deception and sin. Remember, family, fatherhood, listening to king, to the king in these times, it was everything for Jonathan. And yet Jonathan's response to David was what? Verse 4 in chapter 20, whatever you want me to do. After hearing the anguish, hearing the suffering, there's an empathy and a protectiveness and an honesty and a sharpening that comes as a result. And he says, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. That's a friend. 
Number eight, friends are actively present. Whatever you want me to do, I will do for you. You see, actions without promise, that's contractual. That's a contractual relationship. You do for me, I do for you, right? But a promise without actions is just sentiment. Well, you know I love you. You know I care. But it's still selfish. It's still serving yourself. If you look at Jonathan, he knows the cost. And he says, I'll be there. He says it in the beginning. He says it in the end. He even says it in between. And then he says it in the early part of chapter 20. He says, whatever you need, I'm the prince. I can do it. I'll be there for you. And he does. He even gives up himself. That's a friend. It saves David's life. Because of Jonathan's relationship with David, it saves David's life. Literally, physically saves his life. And lastly, if you look at the amazing sacrifice of Jonathan, not once do you see bitterness, not once do you see pride, not once do you see you owe me, none of that. Good friends are marked by a warmth and an affection because you share the same values, because you share the same promise, because you see one another's potential, because you've let each other in, because there's a protectiveness and a loyalty, because there's absolute integrity and honesty, because you've sharpened one another, because you're actively present in each other's lives. It results in this deep affection for one another. In chapter 20, verse 41, if you look at David and Jonathan, these are strong men. These are warriors. If you read ancient texts in that time span that were written by comparative authors, not writing in the Bible, but in other secular writings in those days, you never see men, warriors, kings, princes coming together and weeping. You never see that. Here are men, strong men, warriors, masculine people, but they're weeping and they're embracing and they're kissing. There is the, is the counterintuitive biblical masculinity that you see. And when you see all these things, I just rattled off nine things, and different people are coming into your mind, and positive and negative is coming into your mind, and and yes, I agree, and ooh, I'm terrible, and all that is going on in your mind right now. There's like all these different dimensions. When you hear all this, you're inevitably thinking, right, I'm good at some of these things, I'm terrible at other things. My friend is great at some of these things, terrible at most of these things, right? Um, we need a lot of work, right? We need a lot of work. How do you get there? How do you become that type of friend? Because Jonathan is a life-changing friend. David was saved. He was protected uh, from evil. Uh, David was kind of released he was unleashed to become everything he was meant to be, which was king because of his friendship with Jonathan. Jonathan could have easily sided with his father against David. He could have had David killed. Jonathan would have been king. Jonathan would have been safe. The kingdom would have changed in that respect in his mind. He could have run away with David. He could have become a fugitive with David, but then he would have abandoned his father. So how does he get to stay with his father and still stay with David and honor God in the process? It's that covenant loyalty that he had that enabled him to be a loyal son on one hand and the loyal friend on the other. And he went all the way for his father. Eventually Saul would die, Jonathan would die, and his brothers would all be killed. You see that? Look at the faithfulness of Jonathan. Look at the faithfulness of a friend.
Jonathan takes off his clothes, his sword, all of his protection, the belt that holds him all together, his life, so that David could become king, so that David could be safe, so that David would be protected from evil. How can we be like that? In John chapter 15, Jesus Christ is with his disciples. He will be betrayed that day. And what he says to his disciples is, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. David is saved by Jonathan's wounds. David is redeemed by Jonathan's suffering. For David to be saved, Jonathan had to die. For David to be king, Jonathan had to be dethroned. For David to have the robe, Jonathan would have to take off the robe. For David to reach his potential, Jonathan's potential would be decreased. But Jesus Christ came into the world as our ultimate friend, the greater Jonathan, the greater David, the greater Jonathan. Jesus is the true king, but he came down. And he gave up his royalty, and he gave up his throne. And on the cross, he was stripped completely naked. He was defenseless. He had no defense, completely vulnerable. So that means that on the cross, Jesus Christ was demonstrating these nine qualities of a friendship, all on the cross. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is now I am truly defenseless. Now I'm cosmically vulnerable. Because of his love for David, Jonathan got the wrath of his father, but only partially, right? He stayed with his father. But on the cross, because of Jesus' love for his people, he received the total, full wrath of God. Jesus Christ became the ultimate picture of friendship, of covenant love. And through the cross, Jesus Christ stayed loyal to his Father and at the same time loyal to his loved ones. You see that? That's covenant love. Loyal to his Father, loyal to his church. Loyal to God's eternal love, loyal to God's eternal justice. And so that God's integrity would not be impacted. So God's character would not be impacted. Jesus Christ was loyal to both. And if David was changed and was saved and brought to his greatest potential through his friendship, his earthly friendship with Jonathan, how much more will you be changed if you trust in and embrace Jesus Christ, our greatest friend? Jesus Christ promises. He says in Matthew, to the end of the age, I will be there. For richer, for poorer, he became poor. For better, for worse, he died. So that he, so that we could be saved and redeemed. You want to talk about advancing potential? He says, greater things you will do. Greater things you will do in love. You want to talk about all the dimensions and the mundane? Jesus Christ came to the world. John chapter 1, the word of God dwelled among them. And so he ministered for three years, and he lived with his disciples. Jesus Christ was protective. God says, basically, you must die, or you can give up your friends. What does Jesus do? He says, I'll die. I will take hell so that they won't have to. I will take hell. He says, either I will get separated from God, or you will get separated from God. And so on the cross, he says, my God, my God, I've been separated from you, forsaken. There's tremendous honesty 
David, he says, I'm one step away from death. Jesus Christ died. Tremendous sharpening. On one hand, he affirms Peter in Matthew 16. He says, no one is like you. No one confesses what you confessed, Peter, about who I am. And yet he says, you better deny yourself. You better take up your cross. You better follow me. Active presence, he says, lo, behold, I am with you to the end of the age. And on the night he was betrayed, he's feeding all of his disciples. And they ask him, so who, he says, you're going to all deny me. Peter, you're going to deny me. You're all going to betray me. He says, one of you is going to betray me completely. And they ask him, who is it that's going to betray you? And Jesus says, well, you know, well, the one I'm going to dip this bread in a piece of bread and give to, that's the one who's going to betray me. But the thing is, they never really knew who it was because he fed all of them. Jesus Christ fed all of them. And he goes to even Judas, the person who's going to betray him. You know what it meant to have dinner with somebody at night in those ancient times? It meant you were in down to the moment he was going to die, be arrested. Jesus Christ is looking at Judas and says, take this and eat. I'm inviting you in still. That's a friend. That is Jesus to the end of the age for us. No one sees your potential like Jesus. No one will sacrifice for your potential more than Jesus. Any greatness you will develop in your life in light of Christ will be because of Jesus. And if you see the covenant love of Christ, it can transform you into a good friend. And if you have a bunch of people doing that, it will transform the world because of a great community that God has created here called his church. You will not be somebody who uses other people. You will be willing to be used because Jesus was willing to be consumed all the way. Look to the befriending grace of Jesus, our ultimate friend. And the gospel will turn you into the friend that you always wanted. If you look to the gospel, all those friends that you ever wanted, God will turn you into that friend. And you will move and you will act and you will serve and you will love in a way that will transform others. People need that. You know, we need that. Are you longing for that? You can become that in Christ. You have the power and the resource for that in Christ. Let's pray.